and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azbed, our daf of the day, Masachet Gittin, Gittin, daf Mem Dalit, page 44. So I'm an Aleph I found to be particularly interesting in that it goes through a variety of different cases of uh, of a slave, of an Evit Kanani, right, who is owned by a Jew, who is now sold by, uh, sold to a non-Jew. And we're going to see that there's various different cases of non-Jewish purchasers, um, I might have thought, and I think that this is the interesting observation from afar, which kind of calls into question what I've said several days ago, which is that I kind of had thought, well, there's an advantage to a, a not, there's an advantage like a, from a from a Jewish perspective, from a halachic perspective, if we think that keeping more mitzvot is inherently better. And I'm going to say that Chazal certainly took that approach, right? Then this idea that an Evid Kanani who is under the rubric of a Jewish home and is expected to keep mitzvah at the very least, right? The positive time-bound commandments. Then, I mean, ex- the mitzvot except for the positive time-bound commandments. Then it would seem that, I would think maybe, that if you own a slave, you have the choice of selling to another Jew or freeing your slave. I would think maybe you can't sell that slave to a non-Jew to begin with. But the Gemara here clearly does not say that, right? Like that's not the that's not the case here. Um, or even if there's, we'll see some reluctance. It still bo- boils down to certainly it was the case that non-Jews purchased slaves off of Jews. Um, I'm just at the very top, nearly at the very top of the daf. Amaralaf Tanura Banan Gvao Bechovo Oshlakos Sikarikon. The main issue, I think, of slavery to begin with, and certainly why one would sell a slave, right, rather than freeing him, once we've established that there is this kind of underlying motive of getting people freed when there's a chance to do so, is that uh, somebody could be in debt. And the way they pay off their debt then would be to hand over the slave, right? The slave will be the payment for the debt rather than cash. Or, and the second case here, is if the slave was taken by a sicarikon, who's a, in English, I guess, or Greek, that, that sicaricus, sicarius, right? And this was like a, a group of people that were kind of warriors, right? Meaning they, the word itself is from the Latin, which means assassins or murderers, right? These are people who were violent to begin with. That is the way they function. They function on intimidation, and they're going to come say, like, you need to, you, you know, homeowner, slave owner, you need to give me your property um, and, you know, or I'll take it by force. So these two cases, that kind of like taking over the ownership, we say that the slave does not go free. And the Gemara says, well, why wouldn't the person, the slave go free if the non-Jew is accepting the slave as payment for the debt? Like, shouldn't that be... The, the prime case where the sages, where Chazal established this penalty that indeed, you know, you have to indeed, you know, let your slave go free rather than turn him over to a, what it seems to be a greater sense of slavery. Vraminhi, the Gemara has a contradiction here um, and it brings a breita. Hareshan su beta melech gorno im b'chovo chayav laser im anparot pator milaser so there's a case, right, in the Breita, where there's a 
um, the king's household takes the Gorin, right, the threshing floor by force, and they're taking it, right, the presumption is that it's a matter of paying a debt to the king. So he's going to take the tithe, he's tithing, such as it were, right, he's going to be able to convert whatever grain he's got, and then that would go to the king. And the whole issue is that if he doesn't take the tithes, then he can't, then it says if he's paying the debt using the tithing, meaning like once you're paying back from grain, it has to already be tithed or you're, you're misusing the thing that was supposed to be designated for hectares, for some kind of masa, right? For some kind of holy thing. So then the goes on to say, well, if they took it, if it's, um, it's, if it's an unjust, if the seizing, the seizing of the property is unjust, then the owner doesn't have to tithe to begin with. Meaning that's more like a sale prior to the need for tithing to begin with. So all of this is coming to be a question to say, why would a slave who is taken in payment for a debt not, wouldn't that person automatically be freed because you can't use a slave for this kind of payment of debt for a non-Jew, right? Because again, this question of how many mitzvot is this person keeping is kind of always in the background. Shani, Hatam, the government says, no, it's a different case. Why? The ka mishatarshi le. He he gets profit when he pays a portion of his debt with him with the maser. He's still getting some kind of profit, right? The difference between regular produce or produce that's already been tithed, or if it needs the tithe, um, that's a really different situation than the slave, because a slave it doesn't get any benefit from being, you know, taken by somebody taking over the guy's property, and so therefore. Because nobody's going to benefit from the slave having a transfer of ownership, Chazal don't penalize the person who sold him. It's it's said, it's presented fairly straightforwardly, I would say, but it's not entirely clear to me why it is that that he's not considered that it's not considered a financial gain to be able to pay off your debt. Meaning, once you're paying off your debt, I would think that that means yes, you're not you're not accruing any profit. But um, the idea that it's really a financial loss because you've lost your slave, okay, but you paid off your debt. Like, I'm I'm not sure if this is, you know, my modern sensibility getting in the way and kind of a very, um, you know, deep internal dislike of debt. But uh, be that as it may. The Gemara goes on. Tashma dama rav hamocher avdo lefahang goi. Um this seems to be a word from, you know, we can take it from a different language to begin with. Um, the suggestion that I've seen in my handy dandy Koran, you know, footnotes or side notes, which gives exactly this kind of etymology, says it's from Middle Iranian, um, meaning a guard. So what happens? We have, uh, Rav wants to give a proof that somebody who sells his slave to this Farhang, right, this person who is a non-Jewish official somehow in the government, Right, yet Khirut. In that case, the slave would be freed, even though the owner agreed to the sale, but he's agreeing to the sale because he's under duress by this by this owner, by the I'm sorry, by the soldier or the guard to he's got some pressure to sell the slave. Hatam And therefore, 
this owner should not never have appeased the the official guy, right? Meaning you don't you don't hand over a slave for the sake of making nice to the guard. Um, and besides which, it seems that you know in the case then that he is that if he would not do so, if he does not appease him, then how are you going to penalize him? You're not going to say you have a penalty of freeing your slave in the case of not going forward with free of of using him to I don't know. To, to get the guy off his back. Meaning, if we had here, we have a case of paying off debt, we have here a case of intimidation from one of these assassin or, or you know violent folks, and here we have a case of paying off, to some degree, maybe just because he wants it, right, the government official. The Gemara goes on, Gulfa Amarav HaMocher Avdol Lefarahang Goy Yatsal Lechirut May Havalei Lema'abad Havalei Lefayes Velopies so the Gemara again says what should have happened. He should have come up with some other way of appeasing the official, and he didn't do that, right? Meaning he should have said, like, I will, I don't know, give you presents, you know, flowers every day, whatever. You don't hand over a slave under these circumstances. So all of these, again, like, they they go through. The transaction works. It's not that it doesn't work, but there's still this kind of underlying dis-ease with the idea not disease, right, but an, an unease with the idea that the slave is going to be now in the hands of, is, is being used to pay off a debt and is in the hands then of non-Jews. The Gemara goes on to talk about, and this I'll talk about outside just for a moment, um, what happens if you sell your slave to a non-Jew, but only for a short time, right? What if you do it for 30 days? Is he then, is the slave going to be freed? Is that part of the the penalty for you know being willing to sell your slave under these circumstances do we say it's not a slave at all and what happens you know is that the kind of case where the government official could also kick in there and then the slave gets emancipated but wouldn't that have been the idea that you're only giving the slave over to the official for a certain amount of time or a special project that kind of thing and the answer is the sale is not going to be reversed um it's still again it works the assumption of the duration being less is certainly helpful in this situation. And then I want to say lastly, although I'm sure it's not lastly, the Gemara keeps going, there's the case of what happens if you sell your slave, your slave is an avid Kanani, and you sell your slave to a Gertoshav. A Gertoshav is a non-Jew who lives amongst the Jews in the land of Israel with the idea that they are the people who keep Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, the seven Noachide laws. They're, they bought into the idea of the Jewish people as a special Jewish people, but since they're not Jewish, they don't keep all the mitzvot. So that seems to be much less problematic um, because, again, on the one hand, a Gertoshev is a non-Jew. But on the other hand, because they're kind of part of the Jewish system, um, it makes it a lot easier to, to sell the slave to such a person. And the question comes on, you know, all other categories that we know, right? Akuti, um, right? One of those Samaritans that we talk about on occasion, other kinds of apostates. So if you have a Jewish person who doesn't believe, right? And all of this comes, it all comes before Rabbi Ami. Um, no, I'm sorry. The, there's a dilemma that's raised before Rabbi Ami that's brought to answer all of these questions. The question comes to Rabbi Ami, what happens if a slave runs away from the owner and joins an army? 
And now he's in trouble, right? The master can't remove him. He can't, you can't get him out by halacha. You can't get him out by the civil law, right? The law of the nations of the world. And so what's supposed to happen? Can you pay him? How, how, you, how do you get out of this slavery situation? And all of this then comes back to say, you know, this is how you deal with a situation of purchaser transactions with a non-Jew. Um, what happens, you know, and this is going to be the, the conundrum, I guess, that they use to throw it back to say, you know, that's where that's like the worst case scenario where he can't he can't get paid and he can't free a slave and he can't do anything for this guy. The slave ran away and took the army fundamentally as his master instead. But all the other cases, like to what degree the involvement of mitzvot shows up, um, has has it has mitigating um, relevance for the degree of the penalty of the owner who's not supposed to sell his slave to a non-Jew. So I just think it's interesting how much we see that the owner really gets penalized for this action. And the Gemara basically by giving all these examples is essentially saying there's no way to spin it that this is possibly a good decision on your part as the owner, right? Any type of circumstance or consideration that you may give as to why, how this type of sale happened to the, you know, to the non-Jew uh, we're just going to, we're going to penalize you. Yeah, except for, and then there's wiggle room. Like sometimes he's not penalized because maybe the transaction would have been okay because he wouldn't have been tithing anyway. Like, like each case really is examined here. You know, I just flew through all of them and I, I you know, I didn't do justice to any one of them. But if you actually were examining each case, right, there's a lot of halachic discussion of each of each of the particulars, um, you know, when it kicks in, when when that penalty kicks in. Yeah, I think that's true, too. Right. Like there is definitely some wiggle room. But overall, I think they're, th- th- it's so highly discouraged. You know, they're not trying. I don't think they're trying to give wiggle room. That's what I'm trying to say. Ah, I think OK, that's interesting. That- Right. Like, I don't think they want to give wiggle room. You know, they may. I think they want him to be freed. Right. They want him to be freed, basically. All right. I'm going to move on then to Ahmed Bed, which is going to discuss the other half of that Mishnah, which is these cases of of the owner selling the slave to somebody outside of Eretz Israel. So they start with a brisa here for their discussion. So if an owner sells the slave to somebody who lives outside of Israel, he goes free. And he needs this emancipation document. May Rabbo Shani from his second, you know, from his second owner, from the purchaser. says, Sometimes that slave goes out, right? In other words, becomes free. And sometimes does not. How is that? Amar Ploni, Abdi Mechartihu, Liploni Atuchi. Right. So if the seller says in the, you know, in the sale document, I've sold so and so my slave to so and so the um, and uh, and to uh, and to and to the slave doesn't go out. Now, what does the word and uh, you know, and to and mean? Right. It means that the purchaser was born in in uh and attack, right? But it's but he was but not that he was born and lived there at the time of the purchase. So we don't necessarily assume 
that he intends to relocate or to send the slave from Eretz Yisrael outside of Eretz Yisrael. In other words, they're just picking a city that's outside of Eretz Yisrael, right? It's more, it's an identification of where the per- the purchaser is from, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the purchaser is going to take him there. Um, so if that's the case, but if he says, right, but if he says it's to the um, Antichite who's in Anatak, then he does go out free because in other words, the intention is there that he's going, the slave is going to be transferred outside of Eretz Israel. So the first distinction that this price is making is that it has to be pretty clear from the contract that that was the intention of the purchaser. And I think that's a very, a little bit interesting because in other words, the purchaser could therefore always claim, oh, it wasn't my intention. It just happened later that I left Eretz Israel. So the Gemara is going to, uh, you know, want to discuss this price uh, a little bit more, and specifically the piece about Rabbi Shimon Gamliel said sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? Sometimes he goes free, sometimes he doesn't. But Hatan, yeah, we saw in a brisa, machrituhu laantuchi, right? If this, if the seller writes in the deed, right, I sold it to my slave to this person who was born outside of Eretz Yisrael, right? Laantuchi yatsa, right? So then he does go out, you know, he he does become free. Now our brisa said that the opposite before. Lantuchi Hashuri Velud, if he says my slave, right, uh, to this Antichite who lives in Lod, which is a town, which is a place in Eretz Yisrael, Lo Yatsa, then you don't. So according to this Brisa, right, when you use this term of Antichi, it means that the purchaser lives outside of Eretz Yisrael. It's not a description of the place that he was born. And therefore, uh, if if that's the description of the purchaser, right, then that slave actually does go free because it does seem to be um, that it means that the slave is going to be brought outside of Eretz Israel. This contradicts what Reverend Shimon said, what Shimon ben Gamliel said, because he seemed to say that if it just has the descriptor of, of, of Antichi, then, then, then it would be okay. So they're going to, you know, low kasha, right? They're going to say the second price that doesn't really contradict the first price, huh? Right, the first price. So the one of Rav Shimon is when you know that the purchaser owns something in Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, you know you can assume that uh, you know that he's going to keep him in Eretz Yisrael. But the second price, which seems to be stricter, is when the person doesn't own anything in Eretz Yisrael. So, of course, it, the assumption has to be more that he was going to take him away. And then they have a case about this, Baal Rabbi Yirmiya. So Rabbi Yirmiya asked the following question. Ben Babel Let's say you have a Babylonian man who wed, who marries a woman from Eretz Yisrael. And she brings to the marriage slaves, right? Male and female slaves. And his intention is to actually go back to Babel. Mahu, right? Is when we say that she brings slaves to the marriage, is that considered to be like selling the slaves? Is that considered to be like bringing the slaves uh, to a foreign, you know, to outside of Eretz Israel? Like, is he considered to be basically a purchaser from another country? And in that case, would the husband have to set them free? So the Gemara goes on and says, Tabai Laman Amar Hadin Ima. 
So you can ask, right? What, what, how do we, what's the halakha in this case, according to the one who said that the law is with the woman. In other words, what she, they're saying here is that when she marries, okay, and she brings, you know, whatever property she brings, she brings dowry to the marriage. If she gets divorced, her understanding would be that what? If it's a case where she understands that she would, uh, you know, that she would receive the dowry back. Um, so therefore, any property that she basically brings, right, that's what we call the nichnesek son barzel. We've had that word before, right? Those are um, property sort of that a woman leaves with her husband, um, but it's property she'll get back, right? It's iron property. She's always going to, uh, to, to have it, okay? So the question is, does this get actually returned to her? Um, and so the Gemara goes on to explain, Tibai Laman to Amar Hadin Ima. Okay, so what do they mean by this? You can ask about the person who says that the law is with the woman, right? And what way? Kaven to Hadin Ima. Since the law is with her, in other words, that she should collect those slaves back because it's it's her dowry. Kedida Damu, right? Then that must mean that the dowry is like her property. Odimla Kaven Demisha Abdile Lefera. Or since the dowry is sort of there for the husband to use and to produce, in other words, the slaves are there for him to use, then maybe it's actually regarded as his property. So in other words, they can make an argument either way. Who do the slaves belong to? Do they still belong to the woman? Because if she got divorced, she would take the slaves back with her. Or do they belong to the husband because he benefits from whatever work they do? All right. And then to further that question, they say, Right, you can even still ask this question to the one who says that the law is with the man, meaning that he would keep the dowry. Right, If we say the law is with the man, so then we would say that the dowry is his property. But because the the man doesn't really, he never makes a kinyan on the dowry itself. There's no type of kinyan that it actually has to undergo. Now, this. The Mepharshim don't like the statement because it doesn't really make sense because, of course, he does really make a Kenyan, right? It's a Kenyan with marriage. Okay, so it's not clear exactly what this means, but that's a whole other, that's a commentary discussion, right? Uh, so then we say, then it's really like her property. And the Gemara basically concludes, take they don't actually have a good understanding of this dilemma. Now, I actually would imagine that this was something, this is really not a theoretical. I would imagine this happens often, right? A woman from Eretz Israel marries somebody in Babel, leaves with all her property, including slaves, if it was somebody who's wealthy. And I guess really there's sort of almost like an observation here of like this practice happened, right? Although it is interesting, they don't bring an example for it. Um, I almost wonder if there's like a teku because like they almost don't want to resolve it because the resolving isn't going to help people because let's say they came out with like, yes, that slave should be freed, right? then that really wouldn't be considered a good dowry and maybe people wouldn't do that. Like, I just wonder what's the motivation for not solving it, you know? Like, you would think this would be something that they would be able to solve. I mean, I wonder if there wasn't, there wasn't actually a practical difference, right? Meaning, let's say a couple gets married, she's got slaves, right? So now, is the stuff that the slave does does the ownership of the slave go to him? Does it stay with her? But the work that the slave does comes to the family anyway. Meaning, I wonder to what extent would there, 
when do you have the case where there's a practical application of that you need to know who like the, the status changed or didn't right when when to what extent do these things kick in in a practical way as opposed to in a theoretical way that doesn't really affect how a family is going to function yeah I, I i hear what you're saying like maybe this it doesn't it's not practical because of course the slave is going to leave and and go to Bavel and it, it, it that's just the way that it's going to have to work um, the, then they conclude with another case that's interesting, which is basically if you uh, if the owner moves with the slave, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, outside. So in other words, right, if the slave leaves and then is sold. And so that also has its own whole set of implications that it has to do with whether the owner uh, you know, had uh, whether there was an intention to return to Eretz Yisrael or there wasn't an intention to turn to Eretz Yisrael. Um, but that's also an interesting case. And part of what they're going to get into discussion with is like, does the Evet have a choice? Can the slave choose not to go? And no, that's probably not true. Of course, the slave is going to have to go. So it's also interesting that that's kind of not when you when you see it that way, that's almost actually like the that's like a starting question, right? Like, can an owner take his slaves outside of Eretz Yisrael? And the answer seems to be yes, they can. It doesn't seem to be ideal, but obviously it was something that happened. And like you said, Anne, like I think there's a practical piece to both of these questions. The one about, you know, a dowry, the one about somebody moving out of Eretz Yisrael, like almost in a way like the halacha can't even go maybe where it wants to go there because it probably was something that was just practice. I think so. I find the whole question of of what happens to this like I, as much as we've discussed other property that comes into a marriage. Once you're talking about slaves, I find it to get very very interesting, right? The idea because the slave is not owned in the same way that a field might be. Let's say on a field, yeah, sure, there's produce, and now who's you know to what does, extent does that go to the husband, and for how long if they were divorced and so on? But the slave is a whole other person. Who, who it seems like, I, I don't know. I find it really interesting whether, like, I'm thinking of like, I don't know, picture a case where there's like an old childhood slave who takes care of, you know, the wife from her childhood all the way through her adulthood. And now I've made up the scenario totally, right? And now she's coming with the person to get married and now they get divorced, right? So is this old like nurse slave going to, stay with the husband right like i find that to be a very strange even even possibility i don't think that's how it would play out but i right like there's there's more to it i think than just um than just this transaction of you know yeah, uh, let's do I, the I math like a, a slave is a person it's a human right <laughs> and right, so exactly. it has different rights and i think that's actually what this whole mission is predicated on that you know, as a slave, and remember, this is a Canaanite slave. This is a non-Jewish slave who gets integrated into your household as a Jew. And once freed, is allowed to marry another Jew. I mean, it's like, it's essentially sort of a process of conversion through slavery, is I guess how I would say it. And, you know, they have certain rights from that commitment. And you are not allowed to take that away from them. And so by selling that slave to the non-Jew, or by taking that slave outside of Eretz Yisrael, where they cannot live as uh, a, a, as much of a life as a Jew is not within the owner's right to do that. 
And that's very different than a vase. (laughs) I think that's exactly right. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 